Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Hi, everybody. Mark here. IT guy. Dad. Movie nerd. And a damn thing changed. No, I'm just uh, having fun with it. Um, I'm pretty excited. I got to do my number three favorite movie last episode. If you didn't listen, if you skipped over it, I I recommend listening to it. I, I think it's a wonderful companion to a wonderful movie, uh, but I am biased. So today, we're going to talk about my number two favorite movie. And this is, uh, this is definitely interesting because it's a movie that maybe in the past five or six years has gained a bit of, of recognition that kind of, um, I don't know, it was slept on per se, uh, but it didn't feel like it was wildly popular to me at the time, but I was, I was pretty young also. So, you know, uh, I do remember going to the theater and seeing the, um, you know, the stand up like, um, uh, kind of like promotional cardboard thing. I mean, like, what is that movie about? I want to watch it. And I remember telling my dad and my dad's like, yeah, it looks cool. Um, so it's one of those things where it, uh, didn't quite make its money back in the, uh, in the U.S., but it, it made it worldwide by, a, you know, a small margin, I guess, um, on a budget of uh, 55 mil. So it's not insignificant, especially not for 1998. This movie also has a lot of stars. It has three James Bond villains. And um, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful update uh, to a genre that has passed us by which is the 70s spy thriller. If you listen to me talk about The Born Identity and the episode called The Born Identity, um, I get into that a little bit and I get, a, a, I get into what a 70s spy thriller novel is in comparison to The Born Identity movie. And this is kind of the equivalent, but in movie form. This is the most, or one of the most 70s spy thrillers that you'll get in movie form. I think Spy Game maybe was an update on this update uh, because it has um, a lot more modern of a feel. It's very much a 2000s feel in terms of coloring, editing, and things like that. This is not. This is uh, an update on the 70s version of the action movie. It's like uh, Three Days of the Condor and the French Connection had a baby, and that baby grew up reading uh, the Robert Ludlum books, basically, is is what it is. So... Yeah, uh, this is Ronan. I'm, I'm about to stick that in there. Hello. Phrasing. Um, and please, by all means, watch the movie now because uh, there will probably be spoiler talk. Uh, but once again, this isn't a movie where I'm going to summarize the plot. I'm going to just talk about it in general terms, but there can be spoilers in that. So, uh, engage. So, so I watched, uh, I watched Ronan again and I, um, I cheated here too. I, um, I didn't want to go looking for the disc itself. I know that it's not in the flight case because the flight case are, are primarily movies that my wife had and movies that we bought together. I have, I have owned Ronan probably, when did the PlayStation 2 come out? This is actually how I have to look this up. Right, uh, PlayStation 2 release date in March 2000. I probably have had Ronin since I got a PlayStation 2, which was sometime around the year 2000, 2001. I want to say it was late 2000 uh, Christmas, maybe, because uh, I think I had Game Day 2001 for the PS2. Uh, game Day 2001. PS2. Release date on October 30th, 2000. So I want to say that I got my PS2 Christmas of 2000. And that um, that and the DVD-ROM that I had on my computer, which I also uh, got somewhere in the 99, 2000, 2001 era, um, really opened me up to DVDs. I bought 
uh, a couple of notables really early on, which were The Matrix and Scarface. I think those were my first two DVDs, unfortunately. And I will talk about Scarface um, at some point because it, there's a lot to be said about my experience with the movie. I bought Ronin somewhere like really close in there. And it's it's one of those old DVD packages that would kind of open up, like snap from the side and stuff like that. Not the, I don't think it was a full plastic one. I think it was, anyway. I've had it for a long time. I've seen it a lot. Uh, if I recall correctly, it's a double-sided, one widescreen, one full screen. I would always watch it widescreen because fuck full screen. Um, and I'm clicking the mouse for no reason. And yeah, it's... um. It's a movie that I would put on to go to sleep. I would put on to play Counter-Strike. I would put on to, you know, just read. I would just have the movie on. And that's not to say that I didn't like it. It's to say that it made me very comfortable. And for a movie which is not like body horror or uh, psychological trauma, I guess saying that it makes you comfortable is ultimately a good thing. So I kind of, uh, I should, it's, it's hard to, to know where to start and hard by, it's difficult to know where to start. I should, I should turn on a light here. I, I write things and then I don't turn on any lights. Um, I'm smart that way. There we go. So I think maybe the best place to start with Ronin is actually to, to start with the opening. The opening is... Uh, non-traditional for a movie of that vintage. To give you an example, The Matrix came out in 99. Ronin came out in 98. Uh, and I'll get you that exact release date. 25th of September, 1998. The Matrix release date was March 31st, 1999. So a little bit less than a year. Um, but there are other movies... Um, and who knows, maybe The Matrix is actually kind of responsible for this, but this is a little bit of the formula of a successful, popular action movie. Um, actually, you know what, let me go back a little bit and let me uh, let me think about something. Okay, I'm going to say that if we go back to True Lies, True Lies was released in 95 or so. Already then, they are doing this um, almost cold open, where there's a, a really kind of like a set piece action scene right at the top. And that's to like, wow, suck the audience and, and suck them right in the face, punch them in the face with action to get them in the seat, like, or to retain them in the seat as it would be as if people are just going to get up out of a theater, um, you know, 10 minutes into the movie because no one's gotten fucking punched yet, right? That's a very common thing. And we see that almost 100% of the time now. I can think of a bunch of movies offhand that start out um, in that action-y kind of attention grabber way where it's like, Here's like a hot, sexy action scene that kind of conveys part of the setup of the movie to you instantly so that you want to sit for more. Um, and then some of them mislead you, like Swordfish, and, and some don't, like Gone in 60 Seconds. But um, they're, they're still doing it now. People still get punched right at the top of the movie um, or shot or whatever. So Ronin doesn't do that. Ronin does something that is so almost anachronistic, right? It is a little tiny cafe in Paris. Uh, tiny, tiny, tiny cafe. And this, uh, I think it was a set on the inside in the interior, but a, uh, you know, a, a practical on-location exterior. But I think that... Um, some of the shots, when they had exteriors, were on location as well. They probably just moved to a set and tried to recreate it just for ease of filming and lighting and things like that. But, wow. Um, nothing happens. Things happen. A lot of stuff happens. But no one gets punched. No one gets shot. There's no car chase. There's no knife fight. Uh, there's no kung fu, right? And that is... Such a wonderful and refreshing thing sometimes um, because it's possible to get action movie fatigue, I would think. Um, I would genuinely need to look to uh, people who talk about movies professionally because they see upwards of 150 movies a year. 
I know a couple of them posted on Twitter towards the end of the year how many they'd seen, and I'd seen numbers 160, 180. And I was like, wow, how the fuck? Oh, it's your job. I get it now, right? Because I have to like do go to a job, and then I, I do this on the side and other things. So, I mean, I, I get how difficult that can be. But even then, that's a lot of movies. That is a ton of movies that you have to watch and digest. And when things get uh, the same for me for a while, they get really tedious and repetitive. And I get very frustrated, and I act out and I rebel. This movie is the change that I need, right? And nothing happens. All that happens is that the one guy, uh, Skip, uh, God, what's his name? His name's Larry in the movie. Uh, but it's uh, Skip Suddeth just makes creepy faces at everybody while drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette. And it is the best. Jean Reno is just there, throwing back a little wine. Natasha McElhone's like cleaning a glass. But this is also telling of of the characters themselves, right? And I'm gonna. This is deep spoiler territory, mind you. This is the first scene of the movie, but you learn a lot. And when I talked about subtext in Brick, uh, there is definitely subtext in this movie. And once you've seen it through, watch it again. And you will understand things better the second time, uh, the the subtext of the scenes. So Natasha McElhone walks in, and she's a Deidre. And she just kind of puts on an apron, and she's like, la, 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 I work here. This is my cover. Um, and it's a very naive, maybe, point of view. Uh, a naive worldview, almost, where just cleaning this glass or whatever, it's going to be fine. I just walked in here like five minutes before closing. It makes sense. Larry is in there like it's a fucking hardcore grade A spy movie, and he's like mean mugging for this camera, like sketchy, like shifty-eyed, smoke a cigarette. Um, I don't remember Sean Bean being in there uh, at this point. I felt like he showed up later, but maybe I was wrong. Um, but he's part of that crew. Jean Renault goes in and acts totally natural and he's not being shifty he's not being weird he's just blending because he is french and they are in france and that is what he is expert at that's what he is meant to do right that is his whole role but robert de niro spends like several minutes outside of the cafe scoping it out from different angles and trying things and then um robert de niro robert de niro's character sam he Walks around the back and he stashes a gun behind some uh, some like drink crates or, or whatever the case is. And then he goes inside and he pretends to be a French guy. And he's like, uh, uh, you know, small drink, then I'll leave. Uh, Where's the toilet? Where's the bathroom? Walks out and then quote unquote air quotes, heavy air quotes, mistakenly unlocks the back door, which was right by where he stashed the gun. And then I was like, oh, wait, this isn't the bathroom. This is outside, dude. Like, what? And then goes to the bathroom. And he knew that the bathroom was there because he saw it through the window when he went to put the gun there. And he unlocked the door so that he would have easy egress had he had need for it. So then he comes back in and Natasha McElhone's all like, why are you rushing off? And that's a, that's a bad Irish accent on my part. Her Irish accent is better, but she is not Irish. So I'm, so, I'm sure... I'm certain that uh, Irish people can correct me on that. Uh, I cannot correct myself. Um, but you'll hear all about accents and Scarface. All about it. More than you would ever want. I can talk about accents and Scarface for hours. And he's like, no, ne, compre, ne compre pas, or whatever. The I don't understand in French. Uh, ne comprends, uh, I guess, is I don't understand. Ne pas, you know, to negate and the verb. Anyway. She's like, why are you rushing off in English? Like, I know who you are. And he's still playing it, like, really cool. And then she has to, like, give him, like, the the information. Uh, the man from Bristol, right? So he's like, what man, right, in English? So he knows that she knows, but he just wants to, like, double confirm the man in the wheelchair. And he's like, okay, cool, right? So everybody's kind of on the same page then. Everybody's there because of the man in the wheelchair in one respect or another. So they all start heading out to a van that 
pulls up to the back. And Natasha, in going outside, realizes that the door, the door was unlocked. And she says, uh, what were you doing out here? And fucking, he tells her, lady, I never walk into a place I don't know how to walk out of. And then bends down and picks up his gun. And then she says, well, why are you getting in that van? And he's like, you know the reason why. Or you know why. So already there, the movie is fucking set. We know that there are different levels of experience and um, preparation among all these people. But we know that Robert De Niro is maybe the more experienced and definitely the more prepared for this adventure that we're about to embark on. Um, we know that uh, Deidre is maybe a little less experienced, a little less, uh, how shall I say, seasoned, right? And things are still kind of new to her. So this is maybe her first rodeo versus Robert De Niro, who's been on many, Jean Reno, who's been on many, and Larry, who maybe has been on many, but not in the same capacity as they have. We know that Jean Renault is calm, collected, blends, very chill. And we know that Larry is maybe, you know, like less experienced. He's just mean mugging everybody. He looks like fucking sketch. If you had to walk into a bar and be like, where's the spy? Just Im immediately point at that guy, right? Not that they are spies per se. That is not exactly what this movie is about, but I call it a spy thriller because a lot of the mechanisms of what they do would tie in with the um, the spy and the espionage world and things like that. I've read a lot of books that, how shall I say it, uh, occupy a similar space. There's like a Venn diagram, and, and everything's kind of in the middle here of all these different genres. Tom Clancy, Robert Ludlum, uh, immediately off the top of my head. That's really the that's really the tone. We know these characters immediately. In the first scene, we, we have a an understanding of these characters, and this is... This is something that is so dense that I didn't pick it up for hundreds of viewings and really probably, honestly, just noticed it this past viewing. So this is only going to continue uh, throughout a lot of the movie. Uh, but I really wanted to kind of get into that first first scene because it's so uh, it's so representative, I guess. Uh, I like it. I love it to death. But it's so representative of what we're going to be experiencing i don't want to nitpick every scene like that uh there would be a lot of scenes and there would be a lot going on but there's another scene and that is when everybody kind of meets up for the first time and that is shortly after the that's right after the van ride basically um and uh sean bean john renault uh skip Suddeth, and robert de niro come in as one group and opposite to them Stellan Skarsgård comes in uh, alone, escorted by another like goon, right? Already we're seeing the divide, but we're also seeing Robert De Niro and Jean Reno in foreground in their shot with Sean Bean and uh, Skip Suddeth in the background. And then we see Stellan Skarsgård kind of in the same foreground and his goon in the background. And this has a lot of uh, interesting, this sequence, the scene has a lot of interesting uh, blocking where you'll have one actor kind of in focus in the foreground, like close up foreground, but they'll be offset and you'll have another actor in the background. And there's an occasion uh, where they rack focus from, I think, Gregor to uh, Deidre and back, but that doesn't happen often. But just that placement is so deliberate. That it's, I feel like it's trying to represent something, and I, I've tried to make meaning of it. I don't know for sure, but it um, it definitely gives this movie an interesting look. And I'm going to um, I'm gonna look up this. Uh, I'm a gonna look up this writer J D Zeke. God, this fucking watch. How do I mute Apple Watch? Go on me with this journey to mute. Apple Watch. Make sure you're on Apple Watch face. Swipe up. Okay. I couldn't get to the control center. So I'm going to load up the settings app. And this is what we're doing now. Just call me Mark Brownlee. I'm just going to hit uh, 
meet sound because uh, the vibration's fine. It doesn't bother me. Okay, should be fine. All right, Apple Watch is muted. What the fuck was I talking about? All right, I'm going to look at JD Zeke, who was the main writer for Ronin, um, but who had a lot of changes go through in uh, the screenplay. Uh, apparently, David Mamet was hired to be a script doctor, but it, the movie ended up in a place where he didn't want it to be, so they, uh, they gave him a pseudonym on it. Uh, John David Zeke, Henry the Ninth, Pistol Whipped, The Touch, Witchblade, and Ronan. And he was an executive producer on Witchblade, and he teaches screenwriting at uh, SUNY Purchase in Westchester County, New York. So a lot of people there. Cool. So he's primarily a teacher, I, I would guess. Um, and he's made a couple movies. That's cool. Um, but what I did want to look for was the cinematographer. Robert Frace was director of photography. John Frankenheimer, uh, the director. And we can go through John Frankenheimer real quick here. We'll just run through his credits. Uh, known for Manchurian Candidate, 1962. Frankie, Old Blue Eyes, Island of Dr. Moreau. Birdman of Alcatraz, 1962. He's directed a ton of stuff. Uh, French Connection uh, is in here, I believe. Because he did French Connection too. He did Grand Prix. No, he did French Connection 2, apparently. Did not do French Connection 1. Did a bunch of stuff. Uh, did Reindeer Games, notably. Ben Affleck movie. Wonderful movie. That's a joke. Um, I think I saw Reindeer Games, actually. But it was so immemorable that I, I honestly can't... I'm not sure. I'm not certain at this moment in time. Uh, but Robert Frace... Uh, cinematographing until very recently. Uh, apparently the director of photography for The Notebook, Enemy at the Gates, Seven Years in Tibet. A lot of foreign movies, I guess he's French. So it's Frasse or something thereabouts. Uh, anyway, there are a lot of interesting shots in this movie that are, are kind of repeated, mirrored, or whatever the case is. And if you see the cover for the movie, that's kind of like a... A diagonal onset of Robert De Niro shooting a gun that looks like a reverse of the cover for 15 minutes, which is also Robert De Niro shooting a gun, and it's very confusing. That shot shows up a lot. There are a lot of shots of people uh, leaning out of car windows shooting guns or indoor frames shooting guns or whatever the case is, but it's that roughly same angle, which is um, not maybe not quite as Dutch as it is in the cover, um, but kind of diagonal to their body so that you get uh it's a long lens so it looks pretty compressed but you get like kind of the side of the gun you understand that there is the gun there it's not a flat gun it has depth you see their faces and things like that um, but it's a little compressed so it's not this weird like wide angle uh almost anime looking like or dodge this matrix scene it's not that even though i love dodge this i fucking love it that's one of my favorite things in the world it's not that, but this comes up a lot. There is a cohesiveness to the cinematography, to the blocking um, that feels good in this movie. It's also maybe a, a more classic type of movie. Frankenheimer, a really old school filmmaker, been making movies since the 60s. Uh, he died, unfortunately, in 2002. Ronin was one of his last movies. Um, and it really is just like a classic ass action kind of spy type movie but yeah in the uh, kind of in the uh, the safe house mustering ground uh, place um, warehouse layer if you will if Sam Raimi was directing this it would have been a layer we get to learn more about our characters we learn that Gregor is like um, this like tech wizard Man, a few words, very terse. Um, we learn that Sean Bean is almost a braggart, kind of like a macho one-upper. And we're going to find out real quick that that is mostly a cover and he's a not good. But there's also um, 
a scene in there where right when they they first meet uh, Sean Bean and and Robert De Niro, Sean Bean's like, do, "Do I know you from somewhere?" And Robert De Niro tells him, "Nope." And he's like, "Are you sure?" And be like, "I remember." That's um. That's definitely uh. That is how you can kind of sum up Sam and Spence. Spence being Sean Bean's character. That That's the summation there. The first time you see them together, right, that's all you need to know. He's like, Spence is like, did I know you? Like, oh, I don't know. And Rob De Niro's just like, no, I don't remember. You know, so stuff starts coming out, but um, Robert De Niro, obviously American, obviously prepared obviously experienced um he strikes up a really good relationship with uh jean renault's character vincent vincent i'll start you out uh vincent and vincent is this like a dry funny kind of character and robert de niro appreciates it because robert de niro has his own extremely dry uh sense of humor and i someone had asked me um about me being like quippy and funny and things like that. And I, I strongly think that actually uh, subconsciously my, you know, like uh, 13, 14 year old brain kind of modeled a lot of my personality around Robert De Niro's character of Sam in this movie. Um, because he is a fucking hero uh, to me anyway. He, I don't necessarily think his hero per se. A lot of bad shit happens. Uh, it's not bad lieutenant bad shit. Just in general, a lot of bad shit happens. And, and maybe you shouldn't live your life as a fucking uh, soldier of fortune. But he has intelligence. Uh, he is not too prideful, but he is confident. And and he's quippy and funny and dry and, and dour and serious and, and all these things, which um, sometimes I want to be. Sometimes I can be a little goofy or whatever the case is, but... These are things that I aspire to. I aspire to the competency that that character shows. And and I guess my main problem, and that is that that is a character. That's not even a real person. So maybe that's the, the, the negative side of that is that we don't see how real people handle that and how real people react to it and things like that. But that's fine. Just for the taste of it. So, you know, I think that I'm not going to go too into detail um, with anything else in this movie because those that that the front load of the movie is so dense and so educational. And there's so much subtext that you watching the rest of it, it can be its own adventure. But I will say that there are um, there are things to talk about. There is a score. Um, the score is. Uh, kind of like tense and brass, like brum, 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 like low brass, very tense. I what I wonder if what I made sounded like a fart. It might have. That was an actual fart noise, not an actual fart noise, but the noise that I make that sounds like a fart. Um, but there is this mournful, uh, almost Japanese kind of influenced melody line that is played uh, as the main, I guess, theme per se. Uh, question mark and that's actually played an albanian uh something or other instrument a thing i've never heard of before uh uh armenian armenian and albanian those are almost the same thing to me but it's played on an armenian duduk i don't know that's that's how you pronounce that but it's a, a really interesting instrument it is mournful it is sad and it is completely appropriate for how this movie starts and ends, um, because it starts and uh, I'm not gonna not gonna get into the ending. I just I, well, I I need to get into the ending actually. So you need to watch this movie. Uh, I will get into the ending hopefully towards the ending of this podcast, so that if you have not been motivated to watch this movie just yet, you can and you should. And I watched it on Stars. I didn't necessarily find it streaming on anything. But I will check, can I stream it for you right now? But it's on stars. That's where I saw it. And this website is very, very slow. Very, very slow today. I'll actually search for another website. 
and search that website. And it says uh, it's streaming on HBO and Amazon as well. HBO Amazon channel is actually what it says. I don't know what that means. Uh, rent on Amazon for uh, on Amazon. <laughs> so streaming on HBO, but on my cable, it was streaming on Stars. Um, however, you can rent on Amazon for ninety nine cents. Uh, iTunes ninety nine cents. YouTube two ninety nine. Voodoo two ninety nine. Um, yeah, go watch this movie. However, however you like. However you do. And then can I stream it? Like, legit does not have this movie. It doesn't know of it. So I'm going to talk about the ending a little bit. So the beginning of the movie starts out how the movie ends. And it is wonderful. And the same song plays. And and it's very nice. But what was I getting at? Well, I've gone so off the rails right now that I totally forgot where I was going with this. And this is something that happens when I get really excited and I start to look stuff up. Maybe I shouldn't do this uh, with a browser window open or anything like that, but then I wouldn't have information. I would seem dumb, but I am dumb. So maybe seeming dumb is appropriate. Okay, I'm just going to go and say that the car chases, I'm going to jump into car chases. The car chases are stellar. And Ronan actually has the record for second most uh, destroyed or crashed vehicles in in a movie with uh, 80 or 82. Depends on how you want to count that. And um, they start out pretty hard. Um, and they start out in the streets of Paris. And it's it's not the craziest car chase, but it feels so good. It feels kind of like that French Connection car chase where they actually had a camera on a car and actually crashed it in uncleared streets. It's nighttime Paris, so the streets are pretty empty. But the streets are claustrophobic. They put the camera essentially on the front bumper of the car so you don't see the car you're not doing an over the over the hood shot or over the roof or you know behind three quarter shot you feel really into it and i mean at this time you didn't really see that much in movies um these are maybe longer takes for a car chase it's a, a really cool car it's an audi s8 uh which at this time i had already uh probably jumped into Gran Turismo 3 or 4. Um, so most of what I knew about cars by that point, I knew from Gran Turismo's 1, 2, and 3 or 4. So I knew that, you know, the Audi S8 was a really cool car, a big car, a lot of power. Um, you know, very performant. So that was really cool to see them, you know, kind of throw that big boy around Paris, these Parisian streets and stuff. Um, very nice. Very, very nicely done uh, lighting. It's dark. It's wet. You know, all these things. Uh, the poor, poor uh, police car never had a chance, essentially. But then there's, um, you know, maybe the big chase, right, uh, where they have several cars. Once again, the Audi. Uh, I think they are going up against uh, Citroen. Oh, geez. Uh, list of cars. And there's a website called Best Movie Cars. Wow. Right. And this Audi is really nice. And I would totally rock one if it was remotely affordable. Um, but they're giving me every car. Wow, dude. I don't want every car. I just want, you know, the, the main cars. So there's a Renault 5. No, no. That's what they're driving there. That's a, that's a different chase. Uh, please. I'm looking for a specific car. And I'm not finding it. It's very annoying. And I'm already past the point in the movie where it is. So they just didn't care? Oh, this 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 website sucks. <laughs> like, I hate this website right now. All right, cool. Here we go. This is also an insane uh, movie called imcbd.org. And this is fucking way more information than I would ever want. Um, But there's a Peugeot 605, a Peugeot. I say Peugeot because it's P-U, and that's like a pew sound to me. All right, I can't find the bad guy car, but the bad guys have really cool cars. I think one of them is that 605 that I spoke of. Um, but, like, people are so fucking insane about, um, I think it's a Citroen XM. Yeah, uh, like a Citroen XM. 
that's a really cool car for a bad guy. But I did want to call out the um, the Mercedes-Benz 450 SEL 6.9. That is a brown Mercedes. I love those cars. They are probably terrible on gas and unsafe and unreliable and all the things that you might want to say about an older car. But I love those cars. And I love that fucking J-turn that, uh, that Jean Renault's character Vincent pulls. Fucking tires just like spewing fucking smoke or tire, I should say. Because I think it was like a one-tire fire. But uh, it was fucking awesome. It was tremendous. And the car chase uh, with the Citroen and and the Benz and the, the Audi, or Citroens, I should say, plural, was really fun. Um, it goes a lot of places. They have that cool like satellite hookup thing, which um, inspire stuff. Especially in the the Tom Clancy stuff of that time, it was not so far-fetched. Um, but even before then, people would have, like, spy trackers and stuff like that, and that's cool. It's cool shit. Uh, but they're using cell phones, which uh, in the Rainbow Six books, that comes up pretty uh, pretty soon, I think, in the first Rainbow Six book. So that was really fun, how they kind of had the uh, the guy in the chair and, and stuff like that. And... The stunt driving is wonderful and it's action packed and the, it feels fast, even though it's not necessarily this, uh, you know, born identity type cut, 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 cut. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that car chases have become more advanced now. We also have a lot, I, I can't even say a lot. We have, um, the ability to create scenes using CG now that were probably fucking unthinkable in 1997, 98, when they were filming this movie, right? Like, impossible. Like, someone said, that'll never fucking happen over my dead body. And then it happened. Um, and I haven't seen Mission Impossible Fallout yet, but I want to, because I'm certain there will be some fucking crazy-ass car shit. And I'll be like, the people that made Ronin would have fucking died before they believed that this would have been possible in a movie you know just because we've advanced so much so seeing these car chases of of an older vintage and shot in an older way where there's you know kind of like wider shots and then kind of narrower shots but not not really the same type of cinematography that we use now the cameras were bigger there were film cameras so big honking like machines making noises and stuff It, it was it was a different scene it's a different feel because of it and it doesn't feel dated, but it is dated. As I was watching it, I was trying to understand the differences between the movie. And I'm like, I was like, dude, this feels like a 70s movie, but like a good ass fucking 70s movie, like peak 70s. Like there are shots in this movie. God, and that Coke is so, oh, that Diet Coke is so gassy. It's, it's burning me. There are shots in this movie that um, feel like they could have been in the Blues Brothers, right? Which the Blues Brothers... um Wildly expensive movie that uh, I believe currently holds the record for number of cars uh, crashed at uh, over 100, which is insane, right? Especially for a movie that's supposed to be cheap. Uh, that's just a whatever. Blues Brothers, great movie. I'll probably get into that one day. Uh, up until then, you can listen to the cinephiles talk about it. Uh, they did a really good episode on the Blues Brothers maybe not too long ago. Maybe long ago. I don't know. I've been listening to Hello from the Magic Tavern almost exclusively for a little while now and i kind of forgot about everything else so the car chase is really good that that's a the big car chase i would call it but then there's the really big car chase um which is the the uh, five series and the uh i think the uh, a Peugeot or a Renault uh i think it's a Renault well you know the lion like rar Renault Renault that's how i remember it's a lion um that is a fucking insane car chase, and it lasts so long. And I think that one of the things that I like about that car chase is that nobody driving in that car chase is necessarily a driver. You know how, like, Larry is, like, the driver? He's, like, the wheel man. You know, like, driver, you're the wheel man. Escape San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. You know, bank robbery, the transporter, uh, baby driver, any of those things. None of the characters driving in the the chase with the BMW and the and the Renault are drivers, but the stakes are are so high at this point that they just they're fucking going for it like full bore, 
you know, everything out, let it hang out. They're just going for it. So, so going back to, uh, this being like a seventies movie, I'm also going to say that I came to that conclusion because there were some, some scenes, maybe a couple inserts and some transitions and some, some effects maybe that at, at first blush seemed a little jank, like a tiny bit janky. And it, it took me a second because I'm like, they're not going to be jank. This is like a, a real movie. But it took me a hot second to be like, oh, no. It's just that these are the old ways of of doing these things. You know, there is no CG blood or anything like that. It's, you know, a blood pack that blows up and, and things like that. So you have to hide it. You have to do things like that. Maybe it looked a little unnatural. So in the edit, they, they cut it down so you can't really examine the frame. And that's kind of where I got to the conclusion that oh yeah okay this is this is me how uh how movies used to be made and um in looking at frankenheimer's career cinematography i found that he also made uh the holcroft covenant movie covenant holcroft covenant movie that is a robert ludlam book so i'm sure he became familiar with the author uh at that time but what was really cool about this movie was actually the uh the short sequence kind of in the middle uh, middle end, you know, I think the bridge, uh, to act two, three, or, or maybe five acts. I don't know. I'd have to really think about the movie here for a hot second to kind of break it down and tell you exactly where that goes in. But it's, it's kind of middle end ish with Michael Lonsdale. Um, uh, Michael Lonsdale is the French guy who played, uh, Drax in Moonraker, right? So Michael Lonsdale being one of the three James Bond villains, we also have Sean Bean, as uh, Alex Trevelyan in GoldenEye. And we have uh, Jonathan Price, uh, who's whoever the fuck he plays and I think Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, because the world is not enough as one with Sophie Marceau. So, and uh, Robert Carlyle, interesting enough. And he looks weird with a shaved head. Anyway, um, so that sequence in... Uh, he. It's kind of like theme the sequence, like theme the movie, the it's a theme of the movie in the movie, blah blah blah. Um, themeception, maybe. But it was nice, it was slow, it was calm, it was quiet, but there is so much uh subtext there as well. Um you know, how Robert De Niro answers his question by not answering it. He's like uh Michael Lonsdale who plays uh Jean Pierre. Uh, asks him, and who were your friends? And Robert De Niro says, I would never hurt a friend. And then Jean-Pierre says, you didn't answer my question. <laughs> and Robert De Niro just is like, yeah, I didn't. You know, like, it's so it's so good. Um, Jean Reno obviously knows Jean-Pierre uh, very well, and, and they have a, a really good relationship, an interesting relationship. And I wonder how that came about, because Jean-Pierre seems to have a lot of really serious context but he's a pretty chill dude you know he's over there making his miniatures he has a miniature from the story of the 47 ronin and that's how the movie kind of gets his name gets its name well the movie's not a him the movie is a gender neutral uh and that was really cool that was really cool um But now that I said that the movie was gender neutral, I'm thinking about the only really um, female role in the movie, which is that of uh, Deidre, which is interesting because she's in a really weird spot. Um, and we find that out throughout the point of the movie that she's kind of new at stuff. And um, once again, spoiler, it's the fucking IRA and they're they're going for stuff and... Ultimately, it's Jonathan Price who kind of is pulling her strings, and she's not really into it, but she knows that if she fucks them, she's really fucked, because they are the IRA, and they are insane. So, in the beginning, when I said, get to the ending, um, the ending is uh, Jean Renault and Robert De Niro back at the cafe where they started the movie, and Robert De Niro's looking outside, and... and uh, Robert De Niro's friend kind of comes in or is is parked outside and he can see him through the door and he's looking at his friend, but he's not really looking 
And Jean Renault's like, uh, I said she wouldn't be coming back here, right? And there's actually three endings to this movie. There is the ending that we have. There is an ending where Deidre comes back to the cafe. And she's immediately abducted by Van. And we can assume that it's the IRA. I don't remember in that uh, ending. It's on the disc. It's on the, the DVD. I don't remember if it is explicitly like a van labeled IRA or if they're wearing fucking, um, you know, plaid or whatever the fuck, little golf hats, I guess. Uh, I don't know if they have lucky charms. I don't know that they are obviously IRA, but she's abducted. And that didn't test well with audiences. So they filmed another one where she walks up to the outside of the cafe and then she walks away. And audiences didn't like that one either. I don't like those either. I, I really genuinely like the ending that we have, which is that Robert De Niro gets in the car with his friend and drives off, and Jean Reno has like this, uh, you know, like four line voiceover as he's looking so French and cool and just walking off. And I got to say, the people in this movie dress really fucking cool. Um, there's a lot of coats. And things like that. Jean Reno's wardrobe is super fucking fresh because it's like practical assassin lumberjack France. Um, he's got sick fucking boots, cool jackets. Uh, he's a tall dude. He makes it work, you know. But yeah, that ending, really good. Um, I like that it leaves it open because we don't know whatever happens to Deidre because she, the lines were crossed, right? So it's just really, um, it's really interesting. Lines were crossed, and we have, um, how shall I put it? We have her in a weird place where she's crossed lines on both sides because she double crosses Sam and Vincent at the behest of Seamus, but then she leaves Seamus there to be apprehended or killed or both, right? So now she has nowhere to go, and it's just, it's a wonderful feeling, but it's also nice that she kind of, um, she doesn't live under anybody's thumb at that point. She's she's out. She's out, and she's not a pawn or a tool or whatever. She's fucking gone, and we can only hope that she makes it, um, because ultimately she did kind of what she needed to do, so I don't think that there's necessarily anything inherently wrong or problematic with her her journey or, or arc I guess because journey would imply a lot more than than what happened um, but yeah there's a lot of subtext um, especially with her and in between her and Sam so at the post office that's a really good scene at the post office Sam is like don't do anything just be chill for a moment and we will be good just chill the fuck out and we'll be all right and she's like, no, you can't do it, right? And her reasoning for that is that they had had a little bit of romance uh, just um, a couple of days before, uh, before the whole thing at Arl. And or, yeah, yeah, a couple of days before the whole thing at Arl, before Gregor fucking double crosses him. So she knows that there is an attachment with him um, with her, right? But what she doesn't know, and what we don't know, until the end of the movie, which is one of the things that I fucking love about the scene, watching it now, after having seen the movie so many times, and just kind of letting it stew. I didn't really, like, I acquired a lot of information watching the movie so many times, but I never really applied it, never really uh, parsed it, is that he needs her alive, and he needs the case so that he can get to Seamus. Because that's the whole point of the case. And that is what I fucking love about this movie. This movie fucking kills the MacGuffin. It does the MacGuffin the fucking best. The only other movie that does the MacGuffin like this is motherfucking Pulp Fiction. That is it. Like, oh my god, those are the, probably the two best MacGuffins. I genuinely can't think of a better MacGuffin right now. Um, but I love the MacGuffin of the case so much the case was on that like cardboard poster and stuff like that like the cardboard stand up like promotional thing like objective get the case and stuff like that the way that um 
Deidre places her hand around the case to indicate that the case is the target was a very unusual thing that was in the commercials and the trailers and things like that. Um, and how they talk about it. Uh, there are some people that have something that we require. Uh, it's, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Um, but that subtext there, how it's subtext, subtext, subtext almost because he doesn't want to kill her because he likes her, but he doesn't want to kill her because he needs a case, but he also doesn't want to kill her because he needs Seamus. And if the case isn't going to get him there, she will. And that is so good. It's so good. And we, as an audience, have a little bit of ambiguity as to what is weighing more on his mind there. But a lot of things happen in the movie because of that. And then ultimately, at the end of the movie, is he thinking about her? Or is he looking at his friend who had just rolled up and was parked outside? We don't know. Um, but that's for us to interpret. And that is wonderful, I think. That is that is genuinely enjoyable. And that is maybe what separates this movie from other movies. Um, all right, I'm going to go down the list of notes here because there are some things that I forgot to talk about when I talked about them earlier that I will kind of bring up now. Um, I wrote down that uh, Sean Bean's Spence is tactical. And tactical is a derogatory term uh, similar to Malcor, where um, people have like all these like tactical guns and knives and all that stuff just to be cool. And they are ostentatious versus practical. And uh, Sean Bean plays it a little tactical. So the interesting thing about Gregor, and this is going to lead up into another point that I have written down, which I loved. Um, Gregor is always making moves to be slightly ahead of the game. And you can see this kind of from the beginning. And um, one of the ones is when the uh, the uh, whiteboard altercation with uh, Sam and, and Spence, Gregor's already making a move. Like, he's, like, going to pull out a gun or, or do something. Like, he's getting ready to, to light the place up. No one else has moved from the table. They're all just, like, watching this stunned. Like, oh, fuck. But Gregor's already on the go. Like, he's... He's plotting his escape route and all these things. And that's um, indicative of Gregor so much. That, that had to have been either a, a choice by Stellan Skarsgård, a wonderful actor in his own right, or, you know, in the screenplay or in the storyboarding or, or whatever the case is, um, a choice by the filmmakers who are kind of in concert with each other because the reaction shots have Gregor moving, but nobody else moving. And, and Gregor's already been illustrated as being somebody... Uh, Maybe not to be trifled with, with the cup scene. And that brings me to the the part in Arl where uh, De Niro sneaks up on, on Gregor and he's like, uh, you're great in the locker room and your reflexes die hard, but you're weak when you put your spikes on. And I fucking loved that one too because right after that, they kind of go on this fucking chase and Gregor is like insanely fast. He's just like running around and dodging and disappearing and shit and it is... It's so good how how Gregor kind of proves himself. And um, Gregor is uh, supposed to be ex-KGB, but I think they mean uh, like Stasi, like East German kind of secret police. Uh, so when they refer to the man in the wheelchair, they, that's why De Niro says, uh, back in your neck of the woods in the late unpleasantness. That's what I understand it to be. Um, but also, the man in the wheelchair is... Uh, <clears throat> the man in the wheelchair is a, a reference to the man in Bristol in the wheelchair is a reference to a kind of bit character in the Bourne identity um, who Jason Bourne ends up killing, which is a man in a wheelchair. I don't really remember it. It's been years since I've read the book, but I'm sure he kills somebody. <laughs> I mean, he kills a bunch of people. But I like that, um, you know, the screenwriters or Frankenheimer kind of in concert, everybody decided that that was going to be like the link like they were kind of all on the same page because ultimately ultimately a lot of this could have been in something like the born supremacy or something like that where a jason born or a jason born type uh could have undertaken this like uh thing that sam does go through 
it would be an older Jason Bourne because Sam is a, a little bit of an older guy, maybe less assuming, right? Uh, nobody's as scared of him because of his age or whatever, but he's still very capable at what he does. And it's not necessarily through physical strength, but more strength of will, intelligence, experience, preparedness, and, and skill, right? And I'm going to say that a little bit, the star of the screenplay is the banter, um, is the banter between Sam and Vincent. It is it is wonderful from start to finish. The part in the bends when he's loading up the uh, that little uh, part in the bends when he's loading up the grenade launcher and Vincent asks him, Vincent asks him, Vincent, I don't even know what I said there. When Vincent asks him, um, what do you want for Christmas? And Robert Jr. just says, my two front teeth. And then Vincent tells him, he's just like deadpan as fuck, may your wish be granted. I fucking loved it. I loved it. I fucking loved it. And these are lines that I think I've stolen and used in real life. And I don't know that, I don't think anyone would ever even imagine that this came from a movie. But I don't care. I just, I love it. It, it makes me happy. I don't care if you don't get the joke. It makes me happy, right? <laughs> um, but no, their banter is, is notable and, and incredible. Uh, in the beginning, you know, uh, well, Sam himself, just Quip City, Quip, Quip City. But when I was talking about things being a little janky earlier in terms of transition and effects, one notable one, maybe one of the ones that stuck out to me the most, was at the beginning of the aural sequence where Gregor is ostensibly um, spying through a camera to find the other Russians. And it's like uh, an, a, a camera viewfinder overlay, but instead of being high up and far away, like the way the camera zooms in from where Gregory is to where these guys are, it must have been like a bajillion, like a thousand millimeter uh, lens kind of deal. But it's not. It's just a normal, probably like 130 millimeter lens on a Nikon camera. And then hilariously enough, the the viewfinder angle is like at street level walking around these guys, even though Gregor's in a building uh, kind of far away. And I was like, oh, that feels really, really jank. But that was maybe the only way to make that kind of uh, establishing and, and coverage make sense at the time. And that was a weird, that was a weird, very 70s decision where the 70s would be like, well, he's seeing through a camera. So just put the camera viewfinder, you know, people believe it. Uh, but I didn't, not for a hot second. And then it's really weird, too, because the guy, the, the French guy that Gregor has kind of running the message for him is like a like a homeless drug addict, Jimmy Fallon. And that just he reminds me of Jimmy Fallon a lot, but like a, a really bad version of him. I, I don't know. It just it kind of stuck out to me and it stuck out to me for a long time because I've been seeing Jimmy Fallon since he was on SNL and things like that. And I was always like, that guy looks like a weird, fucked up, bizarro Jimmy Fallon. So that one always stuck out to me. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I think that's everything I have, um, which so far looking at the, the time that I've been recording, I, it's a lot more than I thought. And I've barely talked about the fucking plot and I've left out so many things because I don't, I don't think the movies, it's necessary to nitpick the movie. I think this movie is about going over it in broad strokes and understanding it and then watching it again. And seeing it again and seeing it with new eyes, fresh eyes, new information, um, and looking for connections with a little more understanding of where they might be. And when you find them there, it's it's really nice. Uh, once again, it's rewarding. Uh, I think I went over that a little bit in the Brick episode. If you didn't listen to the Brick episode, you should. But you should watch Brick before you listen to it. So, you know, tweet at me. Let me know what you thought of Ronan. At uh, CoolMarkD, Cool with a C, and Mark with a K. Uh, plugs, no plugs, no plugs. I'm going to be doing American Graffiti for the next episode. And I have that on a Blu-ray. And I have a really cute story about that one. So, I have to find it. I have to find it first. Um, but I do have my PS3 connected, so I can do that. Uh, da, 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 da. what else? What else? What else? That's it, I think. Um, thank you for listening. You know, find me on that iTunes like, comment, subscribe, rate, so that other people can find 
the show somehow um, because I named it the least searchable thing ever. Uh, if you type in Mark's movie, it doesn't even show up. You have to type in Mark's movie collection because there's so many other less related podcasts that iTunes thinks that you want because fuck me, right? Um, but I was, I was, I didn't spend enough time on this to name it. I just, I wanted to start doing it and get it out there. And it, it is what it is. I don't care. Uh, but thank you for listening. Um, I do, I, I, I care in that I want to make it better. I don't care that it's not search engine optimized. I'm not trying to fucking make, uh, what's this bullshit passive income or anything like quote unquote. I, I don't, I don't do this for money. This is fun. And, uh, thanks for listening. Um, you know, I'll see you next, next week, I guess with American graffiti. And then that'll be the end of season one. Uh, and then I'll, I'll probably take some time off, uh, maybe a, a few months to just kind of do other stuff because this is, uh, it's actually pretty time intensive. So I've been trying to hit it as hard as possible. I'm actually a little, uh, a little lower energy today. I've actually been sick the past couple of days. So yeah, it, it just, I'm kind of getting over it now and it's stomach problems. So, you know, it feels almost like I haven't really eaten anything and yeah, it hasn't been great, but, uh, it is what it is. And I was able to record this. I'm alive. I'm going to be alive tomorrow, hopefully. And, and we'll all be fine. And we'll do American Graffiti next week. So once again, thank you. Uh, I, I really need a catchphrase. I think, um, I think my whole season one retrospective will be just workshopping catchphrases or something. Because I don't know. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, but I'll see you.